I'm going to ask you to pause for a moment and attempt to recall the feeling that you had as you stood and joined in the singing of We Thank Thee, O God, for a Prophet. As you looked upon our living prophet here upon the stand, never have I experienced the spontaneous outpouring of love that we witnessed during your singing and are all, all of us singing that great song. We felt the love as taught by the Savior. I hope that all of you will recall that, will remember it, will write it down. And that perhaps you might say, as I was thinking, words really cannot describe the way you felt as you looked up here at our prophet. Maybe you felt, as I did, that I thought my heart would burst. May that become part of your history. In the hearts of all mankind, of whatever race or station in life, there are inexpressible longings for something they do not now possess. This learning longing is implanted in man by a loving creator. It is God's design that this longing of the human heart should lead to the one who alone is able to satisfy it. That fullness is found only in Jesus the Christ, the Son of our eternal Father in heaven. Paul declared, For it has pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Jesus Christ was chosen and ordained to be the one and only Savior and Redeemer of the world. To the brother of Jared he said, Behold, I am he who was prepared from the foundation of the world to redeem my people. Behold, I am Jesus Christ. In me shall mankind have light and that eternally, even they who shall believe on my name. He taught his disciples, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at that last day. Today, much of the world is celebrating Palm Sunday, commemorating our Lord's entrance into Jerusalem. The multitudes, as described by Matthew and John, spread their garments in the way and took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him. It was the time of the annual feast of the Passover. For some time the chief priests of the Sanhedrin had conspired together to find an excuse for taking Jesus and plotted to put him to death. They felt their opportunity had arrived. The day preceding the eating of the Passover, Jesus instructed his disciples where to find a room so they could meet together and receive his instructions. In that room, Jesus met with the twelve, and they sat down to eat. 
After they had finished, Jesus taught them and ministered to them. He washed their feet and said to them, Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. Then he taught them, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, he said. Ye shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, Whither I go, ye cannot come. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one for another. He continued to teach, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, also believe in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am ye may be also. And whither I go ye know, and the way ye know. But Thomas asked, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? The Savior replied, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him, and have seen him. I came forth from the Father, and am come unto the world. Again I leave the world, and go to the Father. And whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. While in that upper room, Jesus initiated the sacrament, picked up bread, broke it, prayed over it, and passed it to the disciples, saying, This is my body, which I give for you. This do in remembrance of me. This cup is, of, is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. After introducing the sacrament, the Savior said to his disciples, It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. The Savior prayed to the Father for the apostles and all believers, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. 
After Jesus had finished his prayer to his father, he left the upper room with the disciples and entered the Garden of Gethsemane to seek solitude and to pray. O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Of his suffering in the garden, the Savior himself has said, Which suffering caused myself, even God, the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain, and to bleed at every pore, and to suffer suffer both body and spirit? And would that I might not drink the bitter cup and shrink. Nevertheless, glory be to the Father. And I partook and finished my preparations unto the children of men. Behold, I, God, have suffered these things for all, that they might not suffer if they would repent. As the guards and Judas approached him, the Lord said, Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. Then Jesus kissed him on the cheek, and Jesus asked, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Whom seek ye? A guard replied, Jesus of Nazareth. The Savior said, I am he. The guards then led Jesus away to the Jewish rulers and then to Caiaphas, the high priest. I adjure thee by the living God, said Caiaphas, that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. I am. And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Jesus was then taken before Pilate and asked, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. And Pilate said to the crowd, I find in him no fault at all, but ye have a custom that I should release unto you one at the Passover. Will ye therefore that I release unto you the king of the Jews? And the crowd shouted, No, no, not this man, but Barabbas. Then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. And Jesus said, I find no fault in this man. But the crowd shouted, Crucify him, crucify him, away with him, crucify him. And they took him, the master, he whom Peter denied three times, and led him forth. He carried his own cross. He began the long journey to the hill, past the crowd that lined the way, past the weeping women, past the murderous mob that had cried for his crucifixion, and through the gates of the city, out to the hill called Golgotha, the place of the skull. And there they crucified him. To the penitent thief hanging beside him, Jesus said, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. The last mortal words of Jesus, Woman, behold thy son. And then turning to John, 
Behold thy mother. And then, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. It is finished. Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, women went to the sepulcher with spices they had prepared and found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher. The voice of an angel asked, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. This announcement proclaimed the most glorious event since the dawn of the creation. Mary heard a voice ask, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom, whom seekest thou? She said, Sir, if they have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. She heard someone say, Mary. Then she knew him and replied, Master. Touch me not, he said, for I am not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my father and your father, and to my God and your God. Later Jesus appeared to the apostles in the upper room where he had spent the evening with them prior to his death. They were frightened. Then they heard the voice of the Master, Peace be unto you. Why are ye troubled? And why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, <clears throat> that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. And later on the seashore at Galilee, while the Savior and the disciples were eating fish together, Jesus asked Peter, Simon, son of Jesus, lovest thou me more than these? Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. Feed my lambs. And then Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. Feed my sheep. Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. And the Savior replied yet again, Feed my sheep. Three times Peter had openly denied the Lord. Now three times Jesus drew from him the assurance of his love <clears throat> and loyalty. The time had come for Jesus to ascend to his Father's throne. Before his death, he had declared to his Father, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. After his resurrection, he tarried on the earth for some forty days, that his disciples might fully, more fully comprehend his risen and glorified being, and be instructed in matters of the kingdom of God. Now he was ready to leave. The apostles knew he was the Savior. His disciples would no longer associate with him with only the tomb. They would testify of him as glorified. As the place of his ascension, Jesus chose the Mount of Olives, which he knew well, for nearby... On the slope of the mount at Bethany, he had found rest and affection with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. 
Also near was the Garden of Gethsemane, where he had prayed and agonized alone. He chose the Mount of Olives to ascend from, and upon its summit his feet will rest when he comes again, not as a man of sorrows, but as a glorious and triumphant king. There on the Mount of Olives the Savior instructed the apostles and all who believe, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. I testify by the power of the Holy Ghost that this same Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, crucified for the sins of the world, to cleanse it from all unrighteousness, that through him all might be saved. He is our Redeemer, our Lord, our King. His kingdom is again established upon the earth, which is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This church, by divine direction, is preparing the world for his second coming, for he will come again, I humbly declare, in his holy name. Amen. Her children arise up and call her blessed. In Proverbs, King Lemuel speaks of what his mother taught him. She gave him such an impressive guide that it is recorded in great detail. She made a particular point of telling him about the qualities and attitudes to look for in a wife and in the mother of his children if his household were to be so well managed that in the end the children would arise up and call their mother blessed. We need this kind of specific counsel in this day when so many avenues of interest are open to women and when more and more opportunities are coming to us. We need to look very closely not only at the offerings but at our own family's needs if finally our children will receive here in mortality the eternal blessings that a mother is so ably qualified to give. Each mother will have to determine how she can bless her children. Because of the many options from which a woman might choose, it becomes extremely important that she select carefully. To the woman with children at home, that choice becomes not only important but critical. She will need unerring sources for direction, the scriptures, the teachings of church leaders, the personal affirmation to her prayers of supplication. For the changing winds of which we are warned in Ephesians are perhaps nowhere more apparent than in the challenges and decisions women are facing now. We could be easily tossed to and fro, but for the more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that we take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place. In that light of truth, each woman can walk with confidence knowing what is right for her. There is no one way that will fit all circumstances. Some women must come to one solution and some to another. The ideal for a family is, and always has been, to have a mother in the home 
to be with the children, to care for them, and to help them grow, to coordinate and correlate the family's activities, and to be a stay against intrusions of unrighteousness. There are times, however, under unusual circumstances when in order to help provide for even the basic needs of her family, a mother may be required to accept employment outside her home. As President Ezra Taft Benson stated, quote, Many of you find yourselves in circumstances that are not always ideal, who because of necessity must work and leave your children with others. Close quote. It is to those mothers we address these remarks today. We urge also that Relief Society leaders make certain that they include mothers, those mothers, in Relief Society callings and in those lessons and programs that will address their needs. We hope that husbands and home teachers and visiting teachers will give them encouragement and positive reinforcement in the demanding role that is theirs. For we know that in spite of their added working role, they still must provide the emotional support that children need. In addition to the obvious physical needs of children, there are other aspects of a child's life that should not be neglected, even though a mother has employment outside the home. The challenges facing the working mother of small children are many. First, she must find someone to give good care to her child. Next, she has to decide what to do in an emergency situation when there is an accident or sickness. She must rely on the help of an understanding employer or a relative, a neighbor, or a school teacher, or someone to help in those times of crisis. We find that most working mothers organize their time by advanced planning, scheduling, shopping, and assigning chores to include each member of the household. They realize the importance of having meals that provide essential nutrients and the warmth of gracious family dining, even though the fast food establishments appeal to and even cater to the working outside the home mother as an easier alternative. We are well aware that the real challenges, however, for many working mothers come in their responsibility for guiding children through periods of questioning, of decision-making, and in their times of trouble. They come in being able to sense the unexpressed needs of children and those about which young people in their immaturity may not themselves be aware. A mother may not always be on hand when her child's needs seem most acute. But we find that many working mothers take every opportunity to be with their children, to work with them in accomplishing household duties, and when it is appropriate to plan and play together, and sometimes just to be in the same room so that they will have the sense of being with someone who loves them. It might be a temptation for a working mother to plan special outings and play times as the so-called quality time she has with her children. But many are aware of the danger this poses in giving them a distorted picture of life by having all their time together recreational. It is important for children to see the balance that is necessary between work and play. They need to know that special events are more meaningful when daily routines are established and when assigned duties are complete, completed. One grandmother helped her grandchildren learn this truth. When they came to her house, she was careful to have jobs they could do together, and then afterward they played a game, and then another task followed again by a game, and the children learned, as she hoped they would, the relationship between work and play and the comfortable sense of playing after work is completed.
schoolwork too, and practicing to develop musical or other talents can become a part of the daily routine. A mother who strives to know success can help her children learn the price of success by working with them when necessary to help them reach a degree of excellence. A mother can make the difference in a child's achievement. She can give support by monitoring the completion and accuracy of assignments. She can help a child reap the rewards of persistent effort. Even though a working mother cannot be the full-time model she might be if she were home with her children, she can help them learn the personal discipline that comes from daily, routine responsibilities and afterward the well-being resulting from praise for work well done. A mother must consider the essential purposes of life. Leo Rostin, writer, scientist, professor, has made a statement that gives us purposes to ponder. Quote, Where was it ever promised us that life on this earth would ever be easy, free from conflict and uncertainty, devoid of anguish and wonder and pain? The purpose of life is to matter, to be productive, to have it make some difference that you lived at all. Happiness in the ancient noble sense means fulfillment and is given to those who use to the fullest whatever talents God bestows upon them. He continues, Happiness to me lies in stretching to the farthest boundaries of which we are capable the resources of mind and heart. Close quote. A woman who must work to care for the needs of her children should learn the essential purposes of life and come to know the Lord and feel His love and direction. Then she can help her children know Him and grow to feel secure in our Heavenly Father's love. One woman who came to this realization wrote, quote, Right after my divorce, I determined I was going to give my children the best of everything. I would provide well for them. I would substitute in every way for their father. I would take them on picnics, build them a treehouse, and play baseball with them. I would not allow them to suffer because of our divorce. I baked, sewed, ran, played, wrestled. I cleaned, I ironed. I was busy being both mother and father for them. One evening, I put the three of them in the bathtub together while I finished a chore. Then I came back, soaked the youngest, rinsed him and lifted him from the tub and stood him on the bath mat while I wrapped a towel around him and carried him off to his bedroom to put his pajamas on and tuck him into bed. Then I repeated the process with his brother and then his sister. As I bent down to kiss them goodnight, my older son said, Sing us a song, please. Which one, I asked. Rudolph, said the youngest immediately. No, Johnny Appleseed, said his brother. Then their sister said, Sing Stay Awake. I can see if I stay to sing one song. I'll be singing for an hour, and I don't have an hour to spare, so good night. I turned off the lights. Please sing just one song, Mommy. You can choose the song. What about our prayers? Firmly, I replied, I said good night, and I mean good night. As I walked back to the bathroom to tidy up, I thought of how grateful they would be to me someday when they were old enough to realize how much I had done for them. As I entered the room, I stopped short. There on the bath mat were three perfect sets of damp footprints. For one brief moment, I thought I saw standing in those footprints the spirits of those precious children I had just tucked into bed. In that instant, I saw the foolishness of my ways. 
I had been so busy providing for their physical needs of their mortal bodies, I was neglecting their spirits. I knew then that I had a sacred obligation to nourish both. If I were to clothe them in the latest fashions and give them all that money could buy and fail to tend to their spiritual needs, I could not justifiably account for my awesome responsibility as their mother. Humbled, I went back to their bedroom. We knelt together in prayer. We all four climbed upon the boy's big bed and sang song after song until I was the only one awake to sing." Latter-day Saint mothers can find programs in Relief Society that will help them meet the many needs of their children—not only their health and safety, their food and clothing, their social and emotional needs, but their spiritual growth and the establishment of good family relationships that will last beyond time. Testimonies abound in support of those who have provided extraordinary care as single parents. We are confident that the Lord is particularly mindful of such women, and while their role is an unusually challenging one, they can succeed. But they, too, must make their decisions in the light of the principles and purposes of the Lord, in that faith which is truly the substance of things hoped for. With the help of the Lord, families will be given strength to do what they must do, working together using every skill to organize and to be provident in order that they might accomplish the goals they have set. Young children respond readily to real need and can work together with their parent or parents to achieve family success. Of all of the creations of God, men and women are the ones that are to become as He is. We are His children. He has given us a plan, a model, and teachings that will help us gain His attributes. We can learn to become like Him as we use His ways to teach our children, establishing regular communications with them, listening, guiding, prompting, watching over them always, protecting but not manipulating, allowing them to learn by experience, correcting them in such a way that they learn to obey, not because it is our will, but because they have learned to do what is right to do, to grow in wisdom. We can plan our lives, and to the degree that it is possible to determine the end from the beginning, build upon God-given principles to provide the security of truth. We can strive to be a model of righteousness. Children learn what, is, what life is by observing and doing. As a mother provides an example of joy, the children's world is one of happiness, and when she makes wise choices, she helps them to learn discernment, and she can bring to the home the refining quality that is such an important element in worthwhile progress. Learning from the Lord a Christ-like love, she can manifest this kind of selfless care that will bless her home and at the same time show her children how to love. As we are told in the scriptures, by laboring with the might of our body and the faculty of our whole soul, we can have peace in our lives and we can teach our children to pray and to walk uprightly before the Lord. Mothers have the special opportunity of bringing children into the world. They can also play a significant role in bringing to pass their success and happiness here and as they prepare them for life eternal. 
The economic conditions of today present problems to women and their families that have many implications and far-reaching effects. A woman can find solutions as she recognizes the needs that only she can fill in the part that she must play in the Christ-like development of her children. As she lives close enough to the Spirit, that way will be made clear for her. A wife may be compelled to help with the finances of her family. In this matter, we have been given direction. President Kimball has stated, quote, Some women, because of circumstances beyond their control, must work. We understand that. Do not, however, make the mistake of being drawn off into secondary tasks which will cause the neglect of your eternal assignment, such as rearing the spirit children of your Heavenly Father. Pray carefully over all your decisions." Close quote. In A Little Parable for Mothers by Temple Bailey, the young mother setting out on her path of life was told that the way would not be easy, but that the end would be better than the beginning. She taught her children that life was good. She gave them courage, fortitude, and strength. And finally, she was able to teach them to look above the clouds that bring shadows of darkness into this life, to see the glory of God. Knowing how to find their Heavenly Father through the darkness and living by the light of His glory, her children could walk alone. The mother's journey was over, but the end was better than the beginning because of what she was able to teach her children. In the end, it is you wonderful, wonderful mothers who have put your families first, who have helped each child to grow, to feel acceptance of your love and the love of our Father in Heaven, and come to know the truth of the gospel as your life bears witness of it, whose children will arise up and call you blessed. I so testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Few writers in our generation have produced the number and quality of best-selling books as James A. Mishner. I'm amazed at the range of his interests and his commitment to excellence. His success is not accidental. It does not come solely from the endowment of natural talent. His success comes from developing the habit of hard work. He was raised in poverty by a widowed mother. From age 11, James worked six days a week every summer and delivered papers during the winter. At age 14, he apprenticed as a plumber and worked 14 hours a day in the summer and four hours a day in the winter. Looking back, he says, Instead of turning me against work, this ingrained in me the attitude that sensible people work hard to attain sensible goals, a philosophy I still adhere to. End quote. Work is a blessing from God. It is a fundamental principle both of salvation, both spiritual and temporal. When Adam was driven from his garden home, he was told that his bread must be produced by his physical toil, by the sweat of his brow. Note carefully the words, Cursed shall be the ground for thy sake, that is, for his good or benefit. It would not be easy to master the earth, but he... <clears throat> But that was his challenge and his blessing as it is ours. We are co-creators with God. 
He gave us the capacity to do the work he left undone, to harness the energy, to mine the ore, to transform the treasures of the earth to our good. But most important, the Lord knew that from the crucible of work emerges the hard core of character. Work has become a Mormon trademark. We are known throughout the world as a highly motivated, industrious people. Eric Hoffer once cautioned, put a Mormon in a hopper and out comes a tycoon. This intense commitment to the work ethic is our tradition. Mormon industry has left its mark upon every piece of land we have occupied. Missouri, Nauvoo, the Salt Lake Basin, and all the valleys of the mountains where the saints have settled are famous monuments to Mormon toil. Of this period, President Clark observed, quote, We moved under our own power, without subsidy, without loan, wished on our way by the maledictions of those who drove us from our own homes, and then appropriated without paying for it the property that forced us that they forced uh, us to leave behind. So we struggled on against want and misery. Toil and hardship were with us daily, but the Church survived. The people prospered. Character endured intact. We took care of our own poor. In times of scarcity, neighbors helped one another. Time and, and time again, we passed through the fiery furnace. We came out of it each time, refined with the dross burned away, re-inspirited and sanctified." Quote. In this commitment, our prophets have led by example. It is said that President Wilford Woodruff loved work. To him, it was a blessing, a privilege. His toil in the canyons, his sweat in the harvest fields were part of the divine, in the divine economy. To sweat was a divine command as much as to pray." End quote. In our day, I know of no better example of obedience to the divine law of work than President Kimball. Personifying his do-it philosophy, President Kimball has committed himself not only to the pursuit of happiness but to the happiness of pursuit. On one occasion, when Dr. Wilkinson showed concern for President Kimball's health and increasing demands he was making on his body, President Kimball responded in a kindly way, Your job, Brother Wilkinson, is to keep me going at the pace I'm going to go. End quote. This reminds me of the farmer who was feeling a little sluggish and he went to see his doctor. After examination, the doctor told him that his problem was that he, that he was burning his candle at both ends. The farmer replied, I knew that before I came. What I want from you is some more wax. <laughs> President Kimball's complete dedication to his work sets a high standard for all of us. We have a moral obligation to exercise our personal capabilities of mind, muscle, and spirit in a way that will return to the Lord, our families, and our society the fruits of our best efforts. To do less is to live our lives unfulfilled. It is to deny ourselves and those dependent upon us opportunity and advantage. We work to earn a living, it is true. But as we toil, let us remember that we are building a life. Our work determines what that life will be. Work is honorable. It is good therapy for most problems. It is the antidote for worry. It is the equalizer for deficiency of native endowment. 
Work makes it possible for the average to approach genius. What we may lack in aptitude, we can make up for in performance. As recommended by Kerserin, quote, If you are poor, work. If you are happy, work. Idleness gives room for doubts and fears. If disappointments come, keep right on working. If sorrow overwhelms you, work. When faith falters and reason fails, just work. When dreams are shattered and hopes seem dead, work. Work if your life were in peril. It really is. No matter what ails you, work. Work faithfully. Work is the greatest remedy available for both mental and physical afflictions. Close quote. Let me suggest some other elements of, of the work ethic which are important. One, as Latter-day Saints, if we would be true to our religion, we must perform high-quality work. It's a matter of integrity. Every piece of work we do is a portrait of the one who produced it. We are increasingly concerned with the diminishing quality of work in our society. On every hand, we see shoddy workmanship for which full compensation is expected, whether the product meets acceptable standards or not. We must be motivated by a higher ideal than simply meeting the artificial standard of a society which has allowed inferior performance to be acceptable. That is not the Mormon ethic. In times of unemployment, Latter-day Saints who practice the work principles of our religion should be in great demand. Two, let us give full, honest effort to our jobs as though we own the enterprise. In, every, in a very real sense, each of us is in business for ourselves, no matter who pays us. Be honest with your employer. Make sure that the laborer is worthy of his hire. Our employers should get the best we have in us, not just enough to get by or meet uh, common standards. Each of us should set a personal standard based upon our ability. Let us exemplify the old pioneer motto, a full day's work for a full day's pay. Three, continue to invest in your personal development. Expand your, your occupational horizons by constant study. Use your spare time wisely. You know, if we waste 15 minutes each day, it is the equivalent of two weeks a year without pay. Look to your present job as a stepping stone along your career path. Take time to think. The dimensions of most jobs are constrained only by the mind of the uncreative worker. I like what one businessman counseled. If at first you do succeed, try something harder. Four, to teach our children to work is a primary duty of parenthood. Our children have experienced unprecedented prosperity created by parents who have worked hard to provide what they themselves did not have as youngsters. If we are to save our children temporally and spiritually, we must train them to work. We must learn, they must learn by example, the work is not a drudgery, but a blessing. Fortunate is a young man or woman who has learned how to work. Wise is the parent who requires children to learn responsibility and to meet acceptable performance standards. In a Mother's Day tribute, a lovely Latter-day Saint mother, Beverly Graham, expressed appreciation for her home training. She said, quote, 
Mother's love included strict discipline, definite rules and regulations that were firmly enforced. We used these rules as the starch for our backbone. Mother loved being a mother and a lady and enjoyed the arts of homemaking. She has passed this on to my sisters and me. It was with great patience that she taught us to sew, cook, clean house, iron, and so on. Can re-ironing one of Daddy's white shirts until it was perfect be a blessing? Or getting up to do the washing and ironing before school a blessing? Or peeling beets, shelling peas by the hour, husking bushels and bushels of corn for canning, picking berries at the crack of dawn before the sun got too hot? Blessings? You couldn't convince me then, but you can now. They taught me great lessons in the value of thrift, work, and responsibility. Close quote. As we teach our children these values, let us emphasize the, the principle of shared responsibility. Do not be confused by attempts to label some jobs as strictly male or strictly female. Generally speaking, each child should know how to do simple cooking, wash dishes, clean the house, mow the lawn, tend the baby, and wash the car. These skills will do much to make their adult lives happier and more productive. Now what about our leisure time? How we use our leisure is equally as important to our joy as our occupational pursuits. Proper use of leisure requires discriminating judgment. Our leisure provides opportunity for renewal of spirit, body, and mind. It is a time for worship, for family, for service, for study, for wholesome recreation. It brings harmony into our life. Leisure is not idleness. The Lord condemns idleness. He said, Thou shalt not idle away thy time, neither shalt thou bury thy talents. Idleness in any form produces boredom, conflict, and unhappiness. It creates a vacancy of worth, a seedbed for mischief and evil. It is the enemy of progress and salvation. Work is an essential element in the Lord's welfare plan, but it's a special kind of work. Work of the members, sanctified by love, produces the commodities which solve the temporal needs of our worthy poor. The laborer is blessed in his unselfish service. The needy member accepts assistance in the spirit of love and gratitude. He knows it was provided by the toil and the sacrifice of the Church members. To the extent of his ability, the needy member works for what he receives as assigned by the bishop, thereby preserving his dignity. The individual is all-important in the Lord's plan. Any system which does not require initiative, self-reliance, and the necessity of work for what we receive, if able, will not preserve its in integrity. The design of the welfare plan of the Church is to abolish the dole. The dole is a blight in any welfare system and should be feared as cancer in the human body. Brigham Young declared, It is never any benefit to give out to man or woman money, food, clothing, or anything else if they are able-bodied and can work and earn what they need. To give to the idler is as wicked as anything else. Never give anything to the idler. Set the poor to work." End quote. And President Clark added, Brethren, do your best to see that those who consume shall be among those who produce. It is a principle that destroy, destroys character and initiative. 
to get into the frame of mind that our sustenance comes as a gift. End quote. In the broader sense, work is the means to achieve happiness, prosperity, and salvation. When work and duty and joy are commingled, then man is at his best. Tagore wrote, I slept and dreamt that life was joy. I woke and saw that life was duty. I acted, and behold, duty was joy. Work was instituted from the beginning as the means by which the children of God were to fulfill their earthly stewardship. Work is our divine heritage. Elder Stephen L. Richards taught, quote, Work with, work with faith is a cardinal point of our theological doctrine. Our future state, our heaven, is envisioned in terms of eternal progression through constant labor. End quote. The voice of the Lord to this generation is, Behold, I say unto you that it is my will that you should go forth and not tarry. Neither be idle, but labor with your might. And thus, if you are faithful, ye shall be laden with many sheaves and crowned with honor and glory and immortality and eternal life. To this I testify in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. My beloved brothers and sisters, this is a great experience for me. I have waited for this day and hoped for it and believed for it. I have a great love for the people of this area and uh, as expressed by them and by all the people of this valley. And so, as I express that love for them and the memory of the great experiences I've had with them, I bear my testimony. It is divine. The Lord is at the helm. The church is true. And all is well. God bless you, brothers and sisters. I pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I feel very blessed this afternoon as I sit here by our president. I miss him probably as much <coughs> as anybody. I'm glad he's going to say a few words to you before he closes me. We appreciate very much having him come and attend the meeting of the Council of the Twelfth and First Presidency. And when we, we had all the, <coughs> all of the general, uh, general, I can't say the 
out of the general authority of the church meeting in, my, in the temple last Thursday to have President Kimball come out and express his love for them and appreciation for them. And we still had directly no work. <clears throat> Before I go on any, any further, I would like to say that I've had the privilege of attending some of the some of the teaching meetings by the sisters. And I want to tell them I think it's a wonderful thing the way they carry on. May the Lord bless you in your work. Now, as we sat here in this conference, we've been very fortunate to have all the general authorities here who bore testimony, who gave us great prophecies and blessings and the progress this church has made. And as they bore their testimonies to you, I would like to say each and every one of you, all this group of women, have testimonies of the gospel. They wouldn't lie to you. They're telling you the truth and in a spirit where we can't forget it. And that is, they talk to us. I'm sure in most of our minds, they have planted a thought. You have agreed with what they've said, but determine as you reveal it in your minds which one of those weaknesses you have that you want to get rid of and what, what do you want to do to enjoy the presence and the blessings of our heavenly Father. <clears throat> I've had the great privilege of working, working very closely here at the field of four of our prophets and brethren, they're different, different personalities entirely. But to sit there and see how the work, how the Lord works through them, is a great privilege. And you realize then why they were chosen years ago. And just listen to their teachings. I humbly pray that each and every one of us will go home with one thought, and that is to improve ourselves and worthy the blessings of William's way. A grandson of mine, I've asked him to bless the food, and in that, I was very pleased to hear him say and help us to remember how we learned this conference and help us, help us, us to live worthy of it. The pride of our living. Brothers and sisters, may, may the Lord give us clear understanding of where we should improve and serve the Lord and set about it right now, as I have done, to determine to put into practice some of the things that have been taught to us today. I'm very happy to give you this afternoon. I'm glad to see how this conference carried on. It's a very, very good conference. And to have our presence here to this session is a great blessing indeed. May the Lord bless us. May the Lord bless us. keep his commandments. I humbly pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat>